Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Traveling heavy, a delegation of Canadian politicians makes a bipartisan trip to Israel. And having gone that far, one MP tells us the Prime Minister's remarks to Israel have gone too far. The future repeats itself. A new report predicts a shocking rise in temperatures over this century and urges world leaders to ramp up their climate action plans. Control Altman delete after CEO Sam Altman's surprise sacking at OpenAI. Journalist Kara Swisher helps us make sense of what's happening and tells us about what it could mean for the field of artificial intelligence. A new ape appreciation. Not all primates go around thumping their chests and screeching. It turns out bonobos are a pretty groovy bunch who are super chill with outsiders. Many more happy returns. We came back today after this program's 55th birthday on Saturday to find our inbox full of kind messages from you who clearly regard the show's past as a present. And the pipes, the pipes are calling. In an unwelcome attempt to dredge up business, a U.S. plumbing company rebrands the day after American Thanksgiving as Brown Friday, which really puts the GI in TGIF. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that's never afraid to take the plunge. Er. A bipartisan group of Canadian politicians has arrived in Israel. They say they're there to show solidarity and bear witness to what happened on October 7th. The group includes Conservatives Melissa Lantzman, Marty Morantz, and Michelle Rempel-Garner, and Liberals Anthony Housefather and Marco Mendicino. The trip was organized by Canadian Jewish groups, whose leaders are also in attendance. We reached Anthony Housefather in Jerusalem. Anthony Housefather, you've said you are on this trip in part to, quote, make sure that it is clear to Israelis that Canadians support them, end quote. Do you believe that, that that's not clear right now? It's not because I believe it's not clear. Israel feels very isolated right now. Israel is at war. Israel had its worst day in the history of the state since 1948 when it was founded um, in October. And I think that Israelis need to see people from other countries come here and show solidarity with them. Today we met with families of people um, who were massacred on the 7th of October. We met with people whose uh, families are hostage Um, We met with people who just experienced living a nightmare of being in their sheltered room for about 30 hours before they were found, constantly worried that terrorists who were running around outside and sometimes even in their homes would find them. And they felt so comforted that people came all the way from North America, from Canada, to speak with them, to hear their stories to be able to impart those messages back to their own countries. It it really meant a lot to the people we met with today. And I know it will mean a lot to the people that we meet with in the next couple of days. Will you be meeting with Palestinians? 
Um, so we're in Israel, and the people who live here who are Arabs are Israeli Arabs. Mm -hmm. There are people who are Israeli Arabs that we will be meeting with and seeing during the course of the trip. But we met some today just in the course of being around. But we're not going to be crossing the border into Gaza or to the West Bank because it wouldn't be safe for us to go there at this time. I'm aware of the distinction between Israeli Arabs uh, and Palestinians, certainly. Mm -hmm. And I know it's not safe for you to go there. But I wonder what message do you think it sends to people who are concerned about the loss of civilian life uh, in Gaza and uh, attacks by settlers uh, in the West Bank? People who are very concerned about that that increase in violence. Uh, what message do you think it sends to them if you're not highlighting what's happening there as well? Well, I mean, I think there's two things. Number one, the main reason we're here is because of the war in Gaza. The war in Gaza was caused by a terrorist group, Hamas, that controls Gaza, that has spent umpteen amounts of money that have come to the population of Gaza to build underground tunnels that they build under hospitals, schools, and mosques to make the population human shields for them. So the losses in Gaza are horrible, and any civilian casualty anywhere is equally horrible, but Hamas is to blame for this war starting. There was a ceasefire in place before Hamas started a war. Um, and as to the settlers, I mean, I think the message is always to Israel that Canada does not uh, agree with, with expanding settlements and, and certainly any uh, settlers that are doing things that are unacceptable should be called out by us and by the Israeli government. But I don't know that the message is anything about right now Israel is at a war that it didn't start with a terrorist organization whose mission, whose stated mission... But people, its, pe but in, people Palestinians in, in Gaza are not all Hamas and not all Israelis, you know, in, in, in Jerusalem or elsewhere across Israel agree with their government's actions as well. The prime minister of this country, Justin Trudeau, as you know, has called on Israel to, quote, exercise mas maximum restraint in Gaza and uh -huh. stop the, quote, killing of women and children and of babies. It has to stop, as he said, end quote. We know Benjamin Netanyahu has been very critical of, of our prime minister for saying that. You said you wouldn't have used Prime Minister Trudeau's language. Why not? I, I said I wouldn't have used it because I believe Hamas is to blame for what's happened in, in Gaza. I believe that the IDF, Israel's uh, defense forces, acts generally in a way that is appropriate. They they do their best to minimize civilian, civilian casualties. They, they are in a war. They're targeting military operations that are going on below civilian areas. They're, they, they, they do their best. They even have lawyers that advise them on how to follow the law with respect to this versus Hamas that just targets civilians willy-nilly. They're not the same morally. They're not the same. Of course, we want to make sure that civilian casualties are restrained, but Israel knows how to do that, and Israel will do that. When you say that Israeli society is not united, of course they were not united before. Many of us, including me in Canada, um, have criticized Netanyahu, have criticized the judicial reforms, but what happened with the war starting was that Israeli society today, there's a unity government, and the left, the right, and the center that we've met with are all united that this war has to continue until Hamas is eradicated. So Israeli society is to very what, much united right to, well, now. Well, the Israelis we've spoken to on our program who have suffered great losses as a result of this said uh, that, that they are not pleased with this government's response before, uh, and some are concerned about what has happened since. But I, uh, in this country, your own liberal colleague and he's certainly not alone. Samir Zuberi was on our program last month. He and others were publicly voicing support for a ceasefire and was hoping the Canadian government would was, would speak more strongly on that at the time. And he said he was losing sleep mm -hmm. over the number of civilians being killed in Gaza. 
Do you have any concerns or criticisms about Israel's military response since October 7th? I think, I think again, the first thing is a ceasefire would imply entering into negotiations with a terrorist organization that broke an existing ceasefire and would have no obligation legally to respect any agreement that it actually reached if you knew who to negotiate with. So what is that? How will this end then? The the use of the term term ceasefire is something that is a non-starter here. Humanitarian pauses is what the Canadian government has called for. We want to make sure aid reaches... But do you have any criticism of what the the Israeli government has done so far? Because your position, what you're saying to me, sounds very much like what we're hearing from Israeli officials, but sounds to be in contrast with this country's prime minister and some other liberal MPs. Again, I'm not going to draw conclusions as to whether my position is distinct or different. I believe that Israel has an obligation to try its best to protect civilians, to allow aid to enter Gaza, and to let foreigners leave Gaza, and to create a safe zone in the South. So I'm not going to say that their actions are perfect or not perfect, because I don't have the inside knowledge of what military target, nor does anybody else that I know of, of what military targets they're reaching and whether or not civilians are being harmed that shouldn't have been harmed in the process. I believe them. Because I tend to believe Israel a democratic state when they say that they're minimizing civilian harm as much as they possibly can. Uh, but but in but in the end result, that's that's not for me to judge because I don't have all that information, nor does anybody else that is making those criticisms. Of course, I care that civilians in Gaza are dying. I don't want them to die. I want to make sure that everybody lives and lives in peace. But but again, Hamas is the biggest obstacle. Once Hamas is gone, I think then you have a much better chance of having the world be able to reach a two-state solution. Anthony Housefather, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. That was Quebec Liberal MP Anthony Housefather in Jerusalem. The story so far feels like it could have been scripted by AI, insofar as it feels sort of like reality, but not quite. On Thursday, Sam Altman was the CEO of OpenAI, the artificial intelligence startup valued at almost $90 billion. On Friday, the board of directors fired him. Over the weekend, it looked like Mr. Altman might be back at OpenAI after key investors balked at the board's decision. And now it's been announced that Mr. Altman has a new job running Microsoft's AI division. Meanwhile, pretty much the entire workforce of OpenAI is threatening to quit over his ouster and is calling for the board's resignation. Veteran tech journalist Kara Swisher broke key elements of that story over the weekend. We reached her in Washington, D.C. Kara, as you well know, uh, it has been a busy weekend for this company. Many, many twists and turns. Have things stabilized? No, no, not at all. The board (laughs) is still there, and we'll see what happens if they quit, if the employees are leaving. If the board doesn't quit, most of them. Uh, So there's a a couple more things to happen. What are you watching for in the next several hours or days, I guess? A couple things. If if the board will resign. If not, what happens? Um, If the board does resign, what happens? Uh, Sam Altman could come back and then Microsoft. It would change the government, which would give Microsoft possibly a board seat. There could also be an entry of a new figure. And Elon Musk could come in. There's all kinds of things that could still happen. The The company's in play. So with all of this volatility, all of these questions, what mm-hmm. should investors in OpenAI be thinking? Should they be worried? They should be thinking they should have had a better board. <laughs> you know, they, they're minority investors, and so they can't really do anything. They can bring pressure to bear, and there certainly will be on this board, especially 
since the employees have have spoken with their and voted with their feet. Um, and so that's that's one of the biggest things. This was unexpected, I think, from this board. And and if they really had accusations to level at uh, Sam Altman, the CEO, they fired. Uh, they certainly should have been more clear and transparent. They seem to be highly unspecific. And then one of the people who led the coup, essentially, and I'm I'm using that term loosely because uh, it is a board and it's allowed to fire people, but it seems unexpected and unplanned the way they did it, um, is now on the side of Sam Altman. He signed the letter, too, calling himself incompetent, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's what he did. Why do you think Sam Altman got the boot? Uh, I don't know. I, they have given no reason. I think he didn't. he didn't listen to them all the time, I guess. That's the worst thing. And boards and CEOs disagree all the time. I just think he probably didn't spend enough time. So it's too small a board. Um, it's also a board, the people on it, some of them have experience. Some of them could use a little more experience. And there's a push-pull between the profit side and the nonprofit side. And the nonprofit side won temporarily. But now the person, the person who started this thing is now on Sam Altman's side. So that's kind of odd. And there's three others who are who are not the board members. Do you think this came down to, to the mission of OpenAI? Do you think that's what was at the yeah. heart of it? Yeah, it's hard having a profit and a nonprofit in one company, right? There's always going to be attention. You know, there's, there's, there's sort of two sides in Silicon Valley right now, the doom scrollers who think AI is going to kill us and the others who are way too hype, too much hype about it. And there is a middle ground of mitigation and guardrails, et cetera, and what can we use? We've had some lessons from the last go-round with the Internet. And so you shouldn't, you shouldn't have a religion either way on this one. And you have to really figure out the best way for governance. And the government should also be involved. You're so tapped in. Uh, are you usually <laughs> this surprised? Uh, I, you know, I was surprised how cloddish the board was. I, I've never seen a, as bad a board behavior. They weren't prepared. They didn't seem to have a reason. They weren't transparent. And they were doing something to someone who had very obviously, considering all the employees quit or threatened to quit, and most of Silicon Valley was on his side. They didn't seem to read the room very well. What does it tell you about about the leadership that so many hundreds of employees are not on side? And they, they, they're saying they're... It tells they me they like Sam Altman. They <laughs> like the CEO and they don't like what's happened. And also the, the, take, you know, the, the CEO they put in place disagreed with them too. And then they removed her or she left and, mm-hmm. uh, and they put someone else in who is a very particular, very nice experienced CEO, but certainly not of the league of these other people. The whole thing was just badly done. Yeah, it sounds messy, to to say the least. How would you describe Sam Altman as a leader, um, you know, for our listeners who are just digging into this? You know, he's aggressive, but he's he's sort of the nicer face of Silicon Valley. He's much more friendly, cooperative. A lot, He's got a lot of fans uh, all over the place. And he's got, you know, he's, he's an aggressive. He wants to make this the most important company in the world. He's facing a lot of competitors. Uh, some people consider him like a Steve Jobs-like character. Other people, you know, he's just he's got the tiger by the tail in this regard, and and has done a remarkable job creating a company that was worth that was worth eighty to ninety billion dollars. And now, who knows? Beyond the power struggle here, the messiness of as we've been talking, the business side of it. If we talk about stakes, when, when we talk about these are people entrusted with developing very important technology. People have different feelings uh-huh. about the strength of that. So what's at stake here, you know, outside of Silicon Valley? This is an important company and it's under under siege and it's also by itself, right? And also there's all these major competitors, like including Microsoft, one of its biggest investors is doing its own thing. Uh, Meta's doing stuff, Apple's doing stuff, Amazon's invested all over the place and doing stuff itself. This is a major paradigm shift in computing, and it's now, you know, it's a land grab right now. And so that's why it's important. 
How long do you think it's going to take for things to settle down? I don't know. This weekend's been pretty quick. It's <laughs> shifted every. It's like a, it's like the Game of Thrones happening here. And uh, you know, I think this board has to resign unless there's some other wrinkle and you know someone swoops in. Elon Musk just comes to mind for me, like because he was one of the founders of OpenAI and then sort of he left after a, after a struggle with Sam Altman. So. Yeah. He'll, he'll, he'll insert himself because, of course, he's an attention sponge. So, no. Well, since you brought up Elon Musk, you've certainly uh, expressed concerns about him and reservations about sure. his leadership. Yeah. So how do you think that might play out if he does insert himself, as you say? Yeah, I don't know if he has a chance, right? But it doesn't stop him from doing other things. He likes to insert himself in all kinds of things that he has no business being and in, including running uh, – Twitter. So there he is. He's the richest man in the world. I guess he can do whatever he wants. You were breaking a lot of these stories. You were mm-hmm. first to publish the letter over the weekend. We're doing it on Twitter yeah. or X or, you know. So yeah. how do you feel about that? Doing it I on that great. platform. We, yeah. we also did an emergency podcast. I'm just about to do another big yeah. podcast with one of the big figures here. Um, you know, I, I, news is where it happens, right? So I'll, do, I'll put it anywhere. Yeah. Um, I was on CNN. I, I'm a multimedia person. Just before we let you go, the type of technology, but also the youth, the type of minds at play, do you think that's central to all of this? There's a lot of narcissism and arrogance, but that's, that's, that's another Tuesday in Silicon Valley. So, you know. <laughs> Kara Swisher, a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Kara Swisher is the host of the podcast Pivot and On with Kara Swisher. We reached her in Washington, D.C. When you think of apes interacting, you probably imagine them thumping their chests and emitting piercing shrieks before jumping on their horses and chasing Mark Wahlberg. If so, you're not far off, except for the last part, which is not from a documentary, but is from the subpar 2001 remake of of Planet of the Apes. Apes can get pretty nasty with each other, though. But new research suggests that bonobos can be pretty nice to other apes, which challenges the notion that humans are the only primates capable of cooperation. Martin Surbeck is a behavioral ecologist at Harvard University and a co-author of the new paper, which is published in the journal Science. We reached him in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Martin, what does this cooperation between bonobos look like? Yeah, it can look. It can have different. It can look different ways. It can, you know, it can be grooming that they kind of exchange grooming over a short time. Mm-hmm. It can be, you know, that they form alliances with members of other groups. That's particularly females who who aggress the male of one of the other groups. Or it can take the form of food sharing, where they basically share mainly fruits, large fruits, with members of other group. Just take us back to the first time you saw this happening. Yeah, so it was an early start, maybe at three o'clock in the morning in an mm-hmm. African village, and then <laughs> just head out during the dark with a with a head torch and finding the bonobos at their nest site. So they built nests in trees and then waiting for the sun to come up and the bonobos to come down and then basically tracking the bonobos over a day. At that time, I already had some ideas about who am I following and, you know, some of some of the individuals I could clearly distinguish. And then all of a sudden, there were just a lot more individuals that I have never seen before and a lot of excitement in the group. And you Did know, you get excited? Of, like, oh. oh, of course. <laughs> sure. <laughs> on their end, on my end. And then just seeing, right, that, that it's not only aggression, that they kind of calm down and you have pairs of them starting to groom i think that's that's the first things we saw and uh, you know it was clear like oh cool i want to know more about yeah. that 
So how did you test it from from that point on to make sure this wasn't just a, a one-off? Yeah, so so I think, you know, we, we really established a camp so you wouldn't have to go up at 3 o'clock anymore, but you could maybe <laughs> sleep in till 4.30. <laughs> and, and then just really uh, following those bonobos on a daily basis, mainly, you know, with, with, with local villagers. So it was clear, you know, kind of reach out to local villagers and get their agreement and try to establish, you know, a way to follow them together with them in their forest. And so a lot of the data collection for that study has actually been done by, by local villagers and uh, and on a daily basis. And, and once we did it on a daily basis, we just saw that, you know, it occurred regularly. And so these groups met again and again. How long did you track them? Um, I think we're still tracking them, right? Mm-hmm. We started 2016, and, and basically the, the data for this study is over two years. Part of the reason for, for your surprise as you as you watched what was unfolding that first time is, is that that behavior sounds very different than chimpanzees, for example. Yeah, in chimpanzees, they basically have constant warfare, right, with the neighbors. So when once they come together, it's either very short and very aggressive or, you know, can be even lethal. And and that clearly was not the case, right? There was some aggression, and but at the same time, you could see some individuals cooperating. So I was just, you know, over, over time, it became clear that that's a, a more constant pattern, which allows us really to study, right, what underlies these cooperation across social social borders in this species. Based on what you've seen so far, what does your research suggest about the the motivation of bonobos when they're cooperating? Oh, if only I would know that. I mean, <laughs> what, I ca- what I know is kind of that, you know, it's not random, right? So it's not that, I mean, bonobos are a little bit known maybe for their love and peace uh, attitude. But what is clear is, you know, they don't spread the love equally. They really seem to cooperate with specific individuals, with the individuals who are so likely to somehow return the favors at one point. And it's the individuals that are very good cooperators within the group that reach out and, you know, basically connect different groups in, in a certain form of cooperation. Is there ever a dark that's side? What we learned. There might be a dark side. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a good question. I think what we see in chimpanzees, you know, along with this, basically hostility between groups, we have a lot of within-group solidarity, right? And maybe bonobos lack a little bit out on that part, right? It's a very individualistic society, so to speak, in which, you know, at the same time allows for this cooperation to occur. What do you think, Martin, we, we could or should maybe learn from what your research is suggesting? Yeah, I think, you know, I think people always want to know, okay, where are we chimps or where are we bonobos? And I think, you know, that's something everybody has to decide for him yeah. or ourselves. I think what we can learn is, you know, that it's just not so one-sided, right? That, that, our inher- that, you know, there is some potential inherent part for warfare, but, you know, there's another side to the coin. And, and chimps and bonobos, comparing them really kind of allows us to think about what conditions, right, uh, basically facilitate cooperative interactions over over warfare. So that's that's one nice thing we we learn and I think as well that just, you know, constant warfare between groups is not a, a, a universal human legacy, right? That we might have to which we have to overcome by means of culture, that we might there is maybe something in our nature that already enables us to do that. If you go back to, to that first moment and those original two groups are there some interactions that that just stick with you? Those images of those moments? 
Yeah, I mean, I I did not know the individual so well at that point, mm-hmm. right? Uh, particularly one female I knew at that time already, Ivoire, she's an older female, and and she just was, you know, excited. And at the same time, I just realized all of a sudden she was kind of grooming these older females from the other group. I didn't know at that time, right? But uh, to see her so engaged and comfortable, right, in reaching out and and doing things with members of other group that we really would not have expected to see. What's her name again? Ivoire. So ivory, basically ah, ivory in English. Yeah. Ivory. You smile. You smile every time you talk about them. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I think if you if you live a long time with those individuals and study them, it's it's kind of cool because each of them has their own personality, right? And 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 it's kind of funny to speak about her in such a different context. Well, thank you for introducing us to them and Ivoire in particular, Martin. Thanks. Thank you very much for your interest. Martin Sorbeck is a behavioral ecologist at Harvard University. We reached him in Cambridge, Massachusetts. When world leaders met in Paris in 2015, they reached a historic agreement to fight climate change. As you probably know, they agreed to prevent global temperatures from rising more than 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, ideally to a maximum of just 1.5 degrees. It was feasible, if optimistic. But in the years since, that optimism has curdled into pessimism, as report after report has revealed that world leaders are not doing anywhere near enough to fight climate change. And today, a new report from the UN Environment Program paints another dire picture and warns that we're on track to warm by nearly three degrees by the end of this century. The report is called Broken Record, released ahead of the 2023 Climate Summit in Dubai. Nicholas Hörner is a contributing author to that report, and he's in Cologne, Germany. Nicholas, the UN Secretary General, you may have heard, said today, quote, we know it is still possible to make the 1.5 degree limit a reality, unquote. Is it realistic in your view to think that that goal, that 1.5 degree goal, uh, is still in reach? We can still reach that goal, yes, but not with business as usual. Right now, with everything that countries are doing, we are heading towards three degrees, which would be catastrophic climate change, something that we cannot adapt to. It's simply existential threat. Uh, But we can if we really want to. For example, solar energy is globally boosting right now and electric cars are being sold much more than we thought. So these two are really in line with the 1.5 degree goal, but everything else is not. But it shows if we really want to do it, we can. You also say in the report that reaching these goals hinges on countries around the world delivering, quote, more than they've promised. But if countries aren't, can't or won't meet their current climate goals, which you've described as inadequate, you know, how do you navigate those two realities? Yeah, the biggest problem is short-term promises. If countries do everything that they have promised, then we would have global emissions roughly stable by 2030. Uh, But for the 1.5 degree uh, limit, they would have to be halved by 2030. So by 2030, with everything that's on the table, we would emit twice as much greenhouse gas emissions than we really should for the 1.5 limit. So we are really totally off. And that means countries need to go back to their homework 
and submit new and more ambitious goals to the inter international arena. That's really what's necessary right now. It's an emergency situation. They need to, well, uh, stop uh, doing small and baby steps. They now need to really do large things. The report is called Broken Record. Uh, that's telling on a couple of fronts. So do you think these countries will actually do that? Well, it's my 13th uh, UNEP emissions gap report. Uh, and indeed, it sounds really like a broken record. That's not the first time we're saying this. We're saying this really for a long time, that countries need to do more. Um, I think science is very clear. We can do this. There's things that can happen. Uh, science is also clear that climate change is drastic, in particular in Canada, wildfires have been horrendous and they had impacts even here in Europe. We've uh, seen the impacts of these wildfires. So it's really a warning signal. And if we don't change our behavior now, uh, we will really, really have a difficult time. What kind of changes need to, to come into effect for Canada or other countries? What do you outline in the report on that front? What are some tangible things that should happen? Yeah, we should basically worldwide stop uh, building coal-fired power plants. We should boost as much as we can renewable energy, so wind and solar. We should insulate our homes. We should actually build only new homes that almost consume no energy. We should not sell any more uh, diesel or petrol cars. We should go for electric cars. We should massively boost investments in public transport. And uh, we should change our diets to uh, use less meat and more plant-based diets. These are all things that we can do. We know how to do them. They in require massive investments, yes, but they all pay back uh, in lower fuel costs, better health uh, and things like that. So it is a change, but it's a change for good. In the end, if we have done this trans uh, transition towards a zero emissions economy, we are in a better place, but we just need to start running now. The climate summit in Dubai is coming up. As you know, there's there's controversy that it's happening there in the first place. We've we've had uh, conversations about that on, on our program as well. But you know, what would you say to listeners, even the ones who who agree with you, who feel that summit after summit and and little seems to change, and they they feel that it just highlights the difficulties, even hypocrisy in some cases. Yeah, it's daunting sometimes, and I'm, I'm. This is my, I don't know, 25th summit or so, and it's really going at a glacial, very slow pace. But since it is going at a, such a slow pace, you sometimes forget what really happened over the years. Uh, so there is also quite a lot of positive news. So, for example, when we agreed on the Paris Agreement in 2015, we thought we would be heading towards uh, 3.5 or even higher degrees. And now we know that that's out of the question and we'll go to, I don't know, three or two and a half degrees. That's a full degree better than before. Also, we thought only eight years ago that emissions would increase forever. And we now think that they're kind of plateauing and hopefully then declining after 2030. And we also had never thought that renewables would be so cheap that it's cheaper to build new wind and solar than to run an already existing coal-fired power plant. And these are all positive things, all not enough, but they show it is possible to really change our system if we really want to. And that's something that yeah, brings me hope, at least, that we can do it. Each individual summit makes baby steps, but if you take them all together, uh, we have achieved quite a lot. Is there is that is that a shift in language from you and others to to focus on 
the positives as well as as the serious ongoing issues and concerns to make sure that people are still listening? Yeah, well, there's uh, psychologists um, which do analysis on what helps uh, to move people and the doomsday scenario often does not move them. No, it it creates a paralysis or that people are are yeah stopping to do anything. That's not good. I think people need positive visions um, on what they can do. They need to feel agency, that they can change things. Uh, and that's something uh, that yeah some people like to uh, communicate as well. And I, I must admit, I also like it for myself. I couldn't uh, do this work anymore if I would believe it's not possible. And I need some positive messages every once in a while. And that motivates me and I hope it motivates others as well. Niklas, a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Same here. Thank you. Niklas Hörner is a co-founder of the New Climate Institute in Germany. He's also a contributing author to the 2023 Emissions Gap Report. We reached him in Cologne. I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. It cost about $15 billion in federal and provincial subsidies. It's been held up as a big step forward for Canada's auto sector. But today, the next star EV battery plant, set to open in Windsor, Ontario, has taken a big step back in some people's estimation. Opposition parties and unions have brought forward concerns over apparent plans to hire temporary workers from South Korea to do some work on the plant. Nexstar says it's, quote, fully committed to providing thousands of jobs for Canadian workers through the installation process and once the factory opens. Brian Massey is among those raising the alarm. He's the NDP MP for Windsor West. We reached Mr. Massey in Ottawa. Brian Massey, Nexstar's CEO, is making assurances that Canadians will be working there when the factory is ready. What makes you think local jobs are in jeopardy? Well, we had a flurry of activity take place in the last um, number of days. And one was the uh, South Korean ambassador coming to Windsor and then uh, their uh, suggestion that there would be uh, about 1,500 workers that would uh, be you know, subject to coming forth in 2024. And on top of that, we've had uh, um, already an application that went for one position for a clerical position um, for temporary foreign workers approved by the federal government. And this is a little bit different than another foreign worker in the sense that at least the company pays for that. When we're doing $15 billion in subsidies, we'd expect that uh, we would actually don't pay for foreign workers to come and 
you know, have jobs in our community. So th- those are kind of the things that have been taking place. And then there hasn't been a full out uh, denial of use of foreign workers. And we've had 18 months um, to plan for this. And so uh, I'm really at a point where uh, we're getting a lot of information and we're getting the tradespeople coming forth and expressing that even some people at the site were turned away um, in recent days because they couldn't speak English. And uh, we're looking for some of the work mm-hmm. that can be done and should be done by people in, in Windsor and Essex County. What what specifically are you hearing about why the company feels some foreign workers, workers from South Korea, are needed for this installation? I haven't heard anything um, that would actually justify that. And all I've heard is the exact opposite. Um, so what we have is a whole skill set of individuals that are quite capable. And we're, we're very used to, in the auto industry, mm-hmm. um, able to retrain and repurpose and get ready. And so it's shocking that, um, you know, we'd hear that there would be this potential of uh, over a thousand workers coming uh, to the area. And, uh, and would that be just for months. installation or would that be longer term work? That seems to be the point right now at installation, but um, again, there's also the suggestion that um, some of these might be some of the other positions. And, you know, again, we've had in the past um, workers uh, being trained not only from other countries in Canada, but also we've sent workers in the past to be trained in other countries and not to take jobs, but to get training um, so they can do that permanently. So. Um, I don't know why there has not been the training opportunities provided like we did on the Gordie Howe International Bridge, which is being built, where we actually had training uh, at our colleges and universities and also through the unions uh, to bring us up to speed to build bridges and so forth. And so the same thing should be being done here. Just in terms of the installation work, I'm just wondering if it's possible that that workers who know the company, know the layout of the factories and things like that, could that be sort of a, a normal practice? for a well, group to come, help set things up, and then the local workers come in? If that's the argument, and we haven't heard that you know, directly, at, um, but, but that's indirectly is the kind of the assessment, and it, it's mm-hmm. wrong, because we have people with skilled trades to do duct work, to do all the different things, and also with the sensitive equipment, we also have workers that are capable of that too, and also can be trained on that. So it's, it's hard to believe that uh, you know, this day and age in Ontario, we can't build a factory, uh, and then we can't actually staff a factory. We have been doing automotive assembly for over 100 years, uh, successfully is one of the best in the world, and I don't find any value in the argument that uh, we're not capable of doing this on our, ourselves. We should have been training these workers if there is uh, a deficiency, and I don't really believe that there is. I, I, I strongly believe that we have the skill set uh, knowledge base. You got in touch with Employment Minister Randy Bossano uh, last week to, to express the concerns that you're expressing here as well. What kind of response did you get? We, we haven't had a response back uh, yet, but I did talk to um, the Minister of Labour today and um, uh, Seamus Reagan and um, you know, expressed concern about that. They're saying that they're not going to provide some of these assessments. But then I've also talked to provincial people where they're saying it's the federal government um, that would be open to allowing some of these positions to go forward. So we're in a lot of speculation now, which isn't helpful. And I want it sorted out. And so I've actually supported a process to have the House of Commons Industry Committee to, st- you know, to start to talk a little bit about this to, to get to the true facts. You know, what I've pushed for is like, how many man hours of employment is this going to be? Uh, that's the real measuring stick on this. Uh, how much of it, you know, industrial technology and development do we get and training uh, for workers and retraining workers? These are all policy things that should be in place. Instead, what we do is we do 
kind of like a Hail Mary pass um, uh, at the end of the day to try to secure uh, investment because we don't have any policy. And our policy for this and support for these projects really comes because the Americans are so aggressive um, with the, the, the Inflation Reduction Act. And so basically our auto policies have been set in Washington, D.C., as opposed to in Canada. There has been um, a number of projects, and you remember this project as well, too, stalled for a while because um, Stellantis wanted more money because they were getting more money in the United States. And so they asked for those things. And so without a policy, we basically have, you know, the federal government pitching an idea uh, in money, but this one's going to be based on, a, you know, assuming what the United States does and then asking the province to come in and top it up. Whereas what I think we should be doing and have been advocating for, and we've been going actually back since the NDP pushed in 2004, a green auto strategy, as to call for uh, measurables that are in there uh, on the environmental end and also the employment end um, to ensure that there's going to be measurables for, for this. And so we should all know uh, we shouldn't have to fight for information and you don't have to provide every corporate secret that's out there, but you can certainly provide a ton more information that's taking place right now. There's certainly been a, a lot of ups and, ups and downs in this process. Getting this battery plant to set up in Ontario at all was difficult. So are you are you concerned at all that, that these questions about who is working there during the installation or beyond could set things back again? Well, of course, you're always concerned about these things, but that's the whole point of doing this and making sure that, you know, Canadians and, you know, uh, you know predominantly you know, auto workers in this case, um, you know, and other assemblers that, or people want to get into the, the business, uh, get jobs. And if we're going to be putting massive amounts of public funding in this, uh, there's expectations there because, like, who who wants to pay for... Um, you know, workers that you won't even have in your community permanently, and they also won't be part of, um, you know, the the knowledge-based learning and also the contributions that come with pride and dignity when you actually build these projects. Um, and so what I've told is that um, the, the, right now the building trades people are quite capable and competent and can do it. And what I'm hearing, though, is that there seems to be some vaccine pressure to try to see if they can get some foreign workers in there. Brian Massey, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Brian Massey is the NDP MP for Windsor West. We reached him in Ottawa. Well, as it happens, has blown out all the candles and then it took a nap all weekend. <laughs> and now that we're back, Neil, how does it feel to work on a show that is 55 years old? Forever young, forever young. That, but it's also no longer that roller coaster ride across six time zones. We keep repeating that because yeah. we want you to know how insane it that is. It sounds terrible to <laughs> experience, not to listen to. Of course. It was, it was updated as it aired across the country. And that's what it was when it launched on November 18th, 1968. Now, one thing has never changed since that first day, as it happens, has been fueled by its relationship with you, the listeners. And we asked you to help us mark our anniversary by sharing some of the moments that have stuck with you over the years. From Turkey, yes, Turkey, Keith Sharon writes, quote, I've been an avid listener of AIH and most other CBC radio shows for a long time. With the time difference, I usually catch the show early the next morning here, smart man. I still laugh when I recall the 1976 interview Barbara Frum had with the British fellow about the cabbage mm -hmm. he had grown. Oh, it's a classic. And she had trouble getting him to tell her how big the cabbage was. Yeah, that's some trouble. Yeah. Thanks, Keith. Incidentally, that interview was initially considered unairable for obvious reasons. As it happens, only aired it in a holiday episode one year as a blooper, at which point it was recognized as the classic it is. You can find it on our website. Just 
Google as it happens, and cabbage. <laughs> Uh, and here are some of the other messages we received over the weekend. Bonus points to everyone who sang happy birthday loud enough for a 55-year-old show to hear. My name is Karen Camlo. I'm calling from Syracuse, New York. And as it happens, thank you. As it happens, we love you. As it happens, as it happens. Congratulations from me to Hello, you two. My name is Smith Shortell. I'm calling from Ajax, Ontario. I think one of my better stories that I've listened to on that show was the guy from, I do believe it was Britain, who had a bunch of cryptocurrency on his hard drive and then threw it out and was going through all the dumps in the country to find if he could find his hard drive. And anyhow, Neil Coxell, you like songs, you want to hear singing, here you go, I'm ripping off the stones. Telephone rings, I say, hey, it's me who's there on the line. I'm Neil Coxell with some queries, have you got some time? Hi, this is Shauna McLeod, and I'm calling from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, as it happens, happy birthday to you. I really wanted the bonus points. First time I moved out of the house, I was 19, and I moved from Halifax to Germany. Luckily, we were near Canadian Forces Base, so we got uh, CBC Radio late at night, and every single night I laid in bed and listened to As It Happens, and it just made me feel a little more at home, and uh, it was very comforting. Thank you so much, and I will continue to listen as long as you're on the air. Happy birthday. Oh, my. Karen, Smith, Shauna, also to Shekula, to Keith in Turkey. <laughs> Bonus points all around. Thank you to everyone who called and wrote, who sent us all these postcards in here to help us celebrate our 55th anniversary. Only five more years until we hit our Diamond mm -hmm. Jubilee. In the meantime, you can always call us or write us. Leave a voicemail on our talkback line, 416-205-5687. Or send an email to AIH at cbc.ca. Over its 20-year history so far, Tesla has managed to thwart any attempts to unionize. But it's now facing its first formal labor action in Sweden. The strike started at the end of October, after Tesla refused to sign a collective bargaining agreement on wages with its 130 workers there. Those workers are mechanics who work in 10 Tesla workshops across seven Swedish cities. And on October 30th, they walked out. And it didn't stop there. Today, postal workers and electricians joined metal and industrial workers, as well as garbage collectors, painters, cleaners, and more, in a nationwide boycott of the American car company. Yumi Osperi is a dock worker from the port of Gavla, Sweden. He and his co-workers have refused to unload Teslas from cargo ships at Sweden's four main ports for the past two weeks. We reached him today in Askersund. Yumi, when you, when you started all of this a couple of weeks ago, did you expect to see the kind of support and solidarity you're seeing now? No, I I didn't. Uh, think that it would be this big. I've been talking to people from places all over the world, and it's yeah, it's yeah. nice to hear that we have such a big yeah. 
uh, large support. But also in Sweden, from postal workers and electricians, all of the others, our listeners just heard in the in the introduction, that others have are following with job action of their own. Did that surprise you? No, uh, this is a this is a it's a big deal for us in Sweden with uh, this uh, collective agreement. I wasn't uh, surprised that workers all over the country want to fight for it. What message are you hoping to send to Tesla? What do you want Tesla to hear when you say we're not unloading these cars? We we want them to know that uh, we're going to fight for our right to sign the collective agreement. We, we have people who have been fighting for this right for a couple of hundred years, even people who have died for it. So we, we fight, we're going to fight to keep our right to sign these agreements. Tesla says it already offers, quote, equivalent or better agreements than those covered by collective bargaining, unquote. That's, that's from Sweden's TT News Agency. So how do you respond to that? Yeah, but that's great. The collective agreements is just uh, a minimum. It's uh, like uh, the smallest uh, salary and the, the, some minimum payment that the employers have to give to the, the workers. You, you're always free to pay the workers more than the collective agreements, but not less. And, and just tell our listeners why collective agreements have become so such a big part of culture there and people's lives and workers' lives. Why are they so important to you and others? Uh, they call it the Swedish model. It's like um, it's, it's agreement between uh, employers and uh, the workers' union. It regulates uh, retirement payments and insurance if you get sick and of course uh, salaries and yeah, vacation, everything. It's, we need it. <laughs> yeah. We so, want it. So, you know, Tesla, as we said, is saying they offer better things than what the collective yeah, agreements offer. But you're saying the collective agreement is sort of the, the safety net in case a company changes yeah, the, its mind, the, right? Exactly. It's the floor. You can always build higher. It's no problem at all. No, no union member will ever say no if they they want to pay more than the collective agreements. It's fine. Do that. Should be any problem at all to uh, sign a collective ag- agreement if they want to pay more. How likely is it, though, do you think, Yimi, or realistic that Elon Musk will will say yes to signing a collective agreement with, with the workers there? Because he is, he is not in favor of them. He certainly hasn't been to this point. Sadly, I don't, personally, I don't think he's interested. I don't know the guy, but I, if I look what he has done in other countries, he, it doesn't look like he's, he wants to do that. But even the employers have uh, their benefits by signing a collective agreements. You have this, uh, the workers are not allowed to go on strikes and etc. If if we make a collective agreement, so it's a win-win. So I hope that he changes, he he or his guys change his mind, so they sign it. But I don't, I don't think it's likely. What kind of effect has has your job action had so far? 
the effect has been that there's been no Tesla cars that have been uh, unloaded from the ships since uh, Tuesday the 7th, I think. So do you think that, if you don't think that it's likely that he's going to sign uh, a collective agreement, what's the point? Why do you want to keep doing it? Of course, uh, like I said before, mm-hmm. uh, people have died while fighting for giving us this right to sign this collective agreement. And it's go way back, like 100 years or something, that we mm-hmm. we need it to keep the Swedish mole. How long will you keep it up? We can keep it up as long as it takes. We have this uh, EF Metal who are the union that goes on the main conflict with Tesla. As long as they say they want us to fight, we will fight. Do you worry that it might lead to, to a backlash, though, that Tesla might leave Sweden altogether and those 130 mechanic jobs would be lost entirely. Are you worried about that? No, I don't think so. Uh, we have uh, other brands with cars. We have uh, lots of other electric cars companies that can take their place if they don't want to play, play by our rules. When do you imagine this ending? How do you imagine this ending? I hope that they will... That the Tesla people will sit down and have a at least have a conversation with the union so they realize what what their benefits and the workers' benefits with signing an agreement is. Yumi, thank you for your time. Thank you. Yumi Osbury is the chairman of the Transport Union Dock Workers section. We reached him in Askersund, Sweden. It took more than a decade, but the U.S. Department of Agriculture has finally updated its plant hardiness zone map. That's the guide that gardeners across the U.S. use to determine what plants are most suitable for their area and most likely to survive the winter. And for those gardeners, the new outlook is decidedly sunnier, from a gardening perspective anyway. Megan London is a garden consultant and the owner of the homesteading operation London's Priorities. We reached her in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Megan, what will this new map mean for for gardens in your area? What what can you grow that you couldn't before? Um, Well, actually, what it means is a lot of things that we were essentially growing indoors over the winter because they wouldn't survive our winters were now able to plant outdoors. And for me and my growing zone was previously 7B. It is now 8A. So one of the things that I'm actually looking forward to taking out of a pot from inside the house and planting outdoors in ground is the shampoo ginger plant, as well as kumquat and mandarin oranges. I like the sound of all of that. What is a shampoo ginger? Uh, This is actually a tropical plant, uh, believe it or not, which is really odd to say that I can grow that now in Arkansas. But um, a shampoo ginger is essentially a ginger plant, but the secretions that you can pull from the flower itself can be used as a hair mask, like a shampoo hair mask. And it's actually really beneficial for your hair. Have you been doing that? (laughs) Um, Yes, I have, actually. (laughs) So there's a novelty to it. It's great that you can do this outside, but... 
But if we if we take a step back, what do you think the impact of this map will be now? Well, honestly, um, I think the the one thing that a lot of us gardeners are really wary of is the fact that if those winter temperatures are obviously warming up, that's why these, you know, these maps, that's why there was the change is the winters aren't nearly as harsh as they were in the previous decade. So in turn, I think what we're all a little wary about is the bug populations, the unwanted pest in the garden. Um, Naturally, when it's a a deep, hard freeze, you kind of see a decrease in that population. And without that deep freeze, well, then uh, several of us are worried, is there going to be a a bigger influx in pest? And obviously, it doesn't just happen overnight from this map changing. Um, This has been happening, but it kind of confirms what's been in the back of our head, like, hmm. Things are kind of warming up. The, the winters aren't nearly as cold. So you have concerns about pests. Uh, the, we should say the USDA has said these updates aren't necessarily a reflection of climate change. But Chris Daly at Oregon State University, who's a climate scientist, he helped develop the map. He was speaking with NPR and said he expects the zones will will continue to shift and shift upwards because yes. of climate change. So do you see this as a, as a good news or bad news situation? In all honesty, I kind of see it um, as a little bit of both. Uh, good news in the in the meaning that, yay, there's things that we can plant now. And bad news as in, like you just stated, these kind of shift northward at a pace of 13.1 miles per decade. Um, but if you kind of look at 2012's map compared to 2023, you'll notice in several places it seems to have tracked more northward at a faster pace. For my state, for instance, is... Typically, I guess, off of the 2012 map, uh, the majority of my state was zone 7A and zone 7B. Now it's predominantly 8A and 8B. So if my if everything's shifting and it's warmer in the winter, does it not reflect as warmer in the summer as well? And will that negatively impact those perennials? So that's what a lot of us are kind of concerned about that and the influx of the pest. You've been you've been working on this for a while, well before the decision came through or the change was made. So you know, when did you start noticing this and 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 pushing for a change in and the map? Honestly, in the over the last five years, because um, I've been a Hot Springs, Arkansas resident for the past five six years, but I've been an Arkansas resident almost nearly my entire life. Um, so, just in the last five years, uh, just in my gardening alone, I've noticed a big change as far as heat goes during the summer and during the winter. Last year, I think our lowest, uh, coldest temperature was 11 degrees for my area, and that was almost unheard of. Mm. And then just in the last decade, it's not nearly, you know, we've not had those harsh, harsh freezes. Um, So I really noticed the difference just over the past five years. And in the last year alone, uh, during a lot of my garden consultations over the past year, I've even told people I've honestly already considered adopting to 8As zoning uh, for perennials purely because of how harsh the winters have not been. Why do you think it it took so long then? Typically, they, they updated every decade um, mm-hmm. for whatever reason it was on its 11th year this year. And I think it was purely because of how much it fluctuated. Um, this time when you compare maps, it is a big jump. So I just think it was a lot more data for them to process in all honesty. What's You're a pretty experienced gardener, it sounds like. So what's your advice for gardeners looking at this map and trying to assess what's the best thing they should do? 
Honestly, if if you're new at gardening or if you're an experienced gardener, I wouldn't make any subtle change. I would make subtle changes, nothing drastic, because obviously this has been a gradual change over 10 years. I think the big misconception with this new map is people think, oh, and one day we've, we've swapped zones. And it's like, no, this is a gradual change over 10 years. So the best thing that anybody could do is be observant of nature in your backyard and make your adjustments per those you know changes that you see. Because none of us are experts on everything. We're more or less experts in our own backyard. So observing what's kind of going on and documenting and collecting your own data is key to you being successful in your own backyard, especially with these changes. Do you feel like the the people in charge finally listened to you here because you were doing that? Uh, No, I don't think it was necessarily (laughs) because of little me. um, But I think a, a collection of all of us were fussing like, hey, things have definitely changed. So can we see that reflected in this map now? So, but the map is more or less a guide. It's not an all in all plant Bible. It's more or less a guide for people who are beginners or new or let's say that I uprooted from Arkansas and moved to Ontario, Canada. You know, it might be something that I would yeah. want to look at because when it comes to perennials, those are the plants that come back yearly. And obviously, if you do not plant those according to your zone, you more or less could waste a lot of money, time, trouble and have heartbreak when you plant certain plants that will not sustain through your winters. But again, a lot of us have, you know, if you've been gardening or even farming for just the last five years, you are not going to make changes overnight just because of this map. You're more or less going to, it's just a reconfirmation of what we've already been seeing in our own backyards. Megan, thank you. Oh, you are very welcome. Megan London is a garden consultant in Hot Springs, Arkansas. That's where we reached her. Fans of the British animated stop-motion series Wallace and Gromit can relax. Their heroes still have feet of clay. This weekend, The Telegraph reported that the manufacturer that supplies Aardman Animations with its trademark clay closed its doors earlier this year, which would mean future Wallace and Gromit films and other Aardman projects would be in jeopardy. While today the company said that fans have, quote, absolutely no need to worry, that the studio has high levels of existing stocks of modeling clay to service current and future productions, unquote. So all those beloved characters can continue to chew the plasticinery. The potential shortage of that precious, one-of-a-kind, earthy material reminded us of another precious, one-of-a-kind, earthy material. In July, Neil spoke to Jim Bintliff. He supplies baseball's major, minor, and little leaguers, as well as the NFL, college, and high school football players, with mud. Here's an encore of their conversation. Jim, there is, as you know, a lot of mud out there in the world. What makes your mud so special? The place where I get my mud is is rich in certain minerals that aren't in most muds. makes it a little bit unique. It's a secret location, which is not to be revealed. Yes. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. How would you describe your your job, your role at the company? What's your title? I am the mud man. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm it. It's, my wife and I are the total of the company. Uh, I do the harvest. I do the cleaning. I do the packing, shipping. And my wife handles the uh, administrative part. Well, I think for, for a lot of us, even if you know a little bit about baseball, they may not know that your mud is so integral to the game. So what exactly does this mud do to a brand new baseball to make it better for players? 
what my mud does is it it's a like a very fine buffer and it buffs the uh shiny gloss off the baseball and takes it down to uh pure leather it's for the uh pitcher's grip what's the process to get the mud on the ball and what's the technique they need to use the way it's done is uh Whoever's preparing the balls before the game, they'll put a dab of mud in their palm, um, just like a fingertip worth of mud in their palm. They'll rub their palms together, add a little bit of a couple drops of water, and then they just massage the ball. They roll it around in their hands for a few seconds, I think 15 seconds or so. So when you're watching a baseball game... Are you constantly thinking, you know, are you proud of yourself and your company? Are you you're thinking about how your mud is affecting play? It's always in the back of my mind, yeah. Yeah, I, I always I always consider it, um, especially when there's those milestones. You know, somebody hits the uh, the record home run or, or pitches a perfect game. You know, that's my mud. That's my mud on the ball. Does this mean you get to go to whatever game you want, World Series? I can go to any game I want. Mm -hmm. I can get tickets for the World Series. I do have to pay face value for that game. Okay. But any other game, I get complimentary tickets if I ask. I feel like they should just let you into the World Series too, but that's that's a separate conversation. I I want that golden pass. That's what I want. (laughs) (laughs) I want want open access to all the games. This goes way back to your grandpa, right? My grandfather and his friend, Lena Blackburn, who we named the mud after. How did they discover that this was the secret to, to taking these pearls, as they're known, these brand new balls, and making them perfect for play? There, there was a, a, a wild pitch that, that killed a batter in the 20s. I think it was in 1920. Uh, a wild pitch hit him in Temple, and he died as a result. Uh, Ray Chapman. Mm-hmm. Uh, from that point on, the umpires and coaches were trying to find a way to, to make the ball grip, a better grip. Um, they tried all kinds of stuff. They tried tobacco juice. They tried shoe polish. They tried infield dirt. And Lena Blackburn and my grandfather, John Hawes, used to fish and swim in this tributary of the Delaware River in New Jersey. And... Um, Somehow they thought, well, let's try this mud. And uh, Lena Blackburn took some into the uh, Philadelphia Athletics Clubhouse, and the rest is history. We've been part of the game since. Wow. How would you describe the mud for those of us who've never seen it or smelled it or touched it up close? Well, it it varies. It it goes from uh, like a, a, a watery pudding um, through the process, it gets a little thicker. It gets to be like a cold cream. Mm-hmm. That's the ideal texture. When it's at the cold cream stage, that's when I like to ship it out. You mentioned, you know, that that you need to keep the location a secret. Why is that so important to you? For for a long time, my father used to tell me uh, he didn't want other people taking the mud and and taking the business and but. Over the years, I've, I've realized that his real real protection of the site was more over keeping the area in the pristine condition that it, that it is. If, if we were to make our location public and you just have, you know, curiosity seekers and collectors and, and people like that 
would overrun the area and it would damage the uh, ecology of the area. I'll go in a couple times, maybe a couple times in a month. The only thing I leave behind is footprints and they wash away with the, uh, the incoming tide. So that's, that's more, more the reason we keep it secret mm. to protect the area. You love that place. You love this mud. It must be steeped in so many childhood memories for you. Yes, it is. Uh, I grew up swimming and, and boating and water skiing and, you know, family, having family weekends out on the water. And, um, you know, when, when I was doing this as a, as a teenager, we would, it would be the family out on the, the water for the day and we would go water skiing in the morning. We'd stop and have lunch on the sandbar and we'd go out and go get the mud. You're happy too, living this life still? There's nothing better. I, I have the best life in the world. You know, I, I'm not rich, but I'm not working myself to death. Um, my bills are paid. My my orders are all out, put out on time. I'm happy with, with life. That's, a, that's good to hear, Jim. I, I didn't think I could see beauty or find beauty in mud, but uh, you sure taught me that it's there. Thank you. Thanks for calling. And um, good luck in your future. You too. Thank you. That was Jim Bentliff speaking to Neil in July. Here on As It Happens, we're not in the habit of censoring ourselves, but we are aware that while we're sitting here in the studio, you're often sitting down to dinner. So I revel in our show's well-earned status as a loose cannon, but I think this time we're perhaps being too loose. For the record, let me state that I'm uttering the following words under duress. Brown Friday. When our senior producer sent me this story, she prefaced it by saying, it's not as gross as it sounds, a sentence that no one has ever found reassuring. Furthermore, the lead is really not promising. Quote, a plumbing company is warning U.S. residents about Brown Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, which is the busiest day of the year for plumbers, unquote. The pros may be beige, but you don't need much imagination to deduce the reason that plumbers would call the day after hundreds of millions of people eat turkey and green bean casserole and sweet potatoes with marshmallows brown Friday. If it's any consolation, the plumbing company Roto-Rooter clarifies that it is simply referring to the color of the guck that clogs up innocent drains, garbage disposals, and the like. Although clogged toilets do get a passing mention, or a non-passing mention, I think we're all hoping that this is the last time we ever hear the phrase Brown Friday, because whatever it's meant to evoke, you can color me grossed out. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.